1: To get started,
0: visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hello, Guy. Hello, Gary. you all right? Yes, I'm well. It's, uh, it's a really tough one, this. You know, when you interview people, and in, in, in all the 40-odd episodes we've done, you know, there's normally a moment when the actor's in their pomp and they have a, a few albums, maybe it's two, three, maybe four, Albums. Yeah, they're
0: they're imperial phase. Imperial phase. No, yes.
1: But you two have the longest amount of successful records. I and it's been impossible to do what we call research on this. And to yeah. be able to think we can sit down and talk about every record is virtually impossible, right?
0: And what's what's also just incredible is it's the same four guys now as it was then.
1: I know, I know. I wonder <laughs> what that you know because they haven't fallen we'll have to ask him, but they haven't fallen yeah. foul of all the usual you know mistrust or is it distrust or mistrust
0: i think a bit of both anti trust as well I, but then i think that's the actual right. court case you end up having.
1: i used to fancy mistrust
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway um but, but Na- you national know, trust you that's always you know, more you
1: national treasure excuse me <laughs> um, what's kept them together that's what's interest that's what interests me i mean we know that that three of them are you know they're, they're very They're very religious as well, you know. uh,
0: They were, uh, spiritual is perhaps a better word, I don't know, rather than... So we are about to find out with Mr Adam Clayton. Welcome to The Rock On (laughs) Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. That's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course,
1: I
2: had gone and found Johnny Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the
1: back of the car coming into London, they're brilliant. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the ten thousand hours of experience? Oh yeah, yeah the two. Getting good two, at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about fifty hours.
0: The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt.
2: Adam, hi. Where is everyone?
0: Yeah, where are you? I'm in France. I don't mean to ask an impertinent question, right off the bat, but uh, you're in your house in France. Yes. Have you
2: had that house for a long time? It's kind of relative. I've, I I bought the land about 10, 12 years ago and then spent about eight years building a house.
0: Because Rick Wright, of course, who was my father-in-law lived just two kilometers away. I know like the back of my hand round there. Are you still in that area or have you?
2: Well, actually, no. What I, I took over Michael's house. Um, I had this kind of grandiose idea that, that that I would be the holder of his flame for for Tiger Lily. And, Really, after Aww. after a couple of years, I realized the house just didn't work for us as a family. So we moved to grass and then all my bandmates live on the coast. So I would spend my summers when the traffic was really bad driving to the coast. <laughs> and I just I got to hate the journey so much that I said, I'm just going to buy a house five minutes away from them, which is how I ended up having to buy land and build a house very nice yes lovely part of the world i know very well but hello anyway welcome
1: so and what have you been what have you been doing during this this weird weird time Um,
2: well uh, not dissimilar to you actually i've been reading a lot of biographies so we must we must compare notes at some point um i i sort of i went into the lockdown thinking oh great i've got some time to read which i can never do when i'm on the road and then i thought gosh i sort of missed out a little bit on you know what happened from 1976 till now because i was just in that bubble of being focused on a band so there there was a lot of documentaries on that period and i started to reconnect with you know the anti-racism anti-police brutality in ireland we we were anti-contraception so i sort of realized our generation had this political intent that now you know 40 50 years later it's still the same argument isn't it we're still flying the flag as regards racism and police brutality and injustice in general it's quite extraordinary well it seems to be sliding
0: backwards as well doesn't it it's like things don't seem to be working sorry i'm interested in what you're saying
1: agi because i think mm. it, it's uh it really sums up a lot of your work as well in you too the whole well the whole band and 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 bono's lyrics you know and you know, listening back to a lot of your stuff recently, it occurred to me that sometimes you sort of fit into the, to the protest genre to, to a large extent. And there's, there seems to have been a history right through from the beginning of your band of, of, of being involved in, of singing about politics and, and racism or whatever it might be. Well,
2: I think, you know, because of where we came from and what we grew out of, there was a greater tradition of, of folk music, in Ireland, than there was of pop music. You know, pop music was this this later introduction for youth culture, but in Ireland, you know, because of uh, 800 years of colonialism and trying to stamp out, um, you know, all things ethnically Irish or Celtic, the 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 storytelling and the chanó singing was how how stories got repeated and and information was traveled which is not dissimilar to what happened in American music because when you mix the African music with country music which the Irish had brought to America again you had this tradition of storytelling and of course it was usually sort of storytelling that was protesting about some injustice Mm -hmm. that happened and and warning people so I think that's where it comes from.
1: Was it Joshua Tree that was going to be Have I got that wrong, that was going to be called Two Americas at one point?
2: That was was definitely where we were going at one point, was looking at, again, that big divide in America. But in in some ways, most of the material in the end that we picked was much more about, you know, the the concept of people arriving in America and being able to reinvent themselves and, and what America meant. Talking of which, the thing of—I don't know if this is an
0: odd question Alan, but because you've lived in Ireland since you were five, right?
2: Yeah, I—I um, I, I had quite a strange uh, introduction to the world because mm. um, my parents lived in Kenya in Nairobi very, very mm. early on. So I started out in Africa and then ended up in in Ireland. So I suppose I had both traditions.
0: What's interesting is that as you were there for such an early age that you. Don't have an Irish accent,
2: I suppose, is what... Uh, well, <laughs> well,
0: well that's. A... <laughs> I mean, you have a lovely, mellifluous speaking voice, <laughs> it must be
2: said. I, I, uh, I can hear Irish. What are you waiting I'm, for? I'm... Uh, no, no, um, you're obviously a musician. Uh, um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm
1: not a bass player.
2: <laughs> what, what happened was, because I arrived at age five or six in Ireland in the mid-60s, uh, my parents, I think, panicked because they had no understanding of of the Irish school system, and they thought, well, we'll just kick him to what we what we know. So there were a couple of kind of B stream minor um, boarding schools run along English lines in uh, Ireland, and they thought, well, if we send him there, you know, he'll he'll get you know the the same syllabus as in you know the UK. We did O levels and A levels levels and that sort of thing not that i finished anything um i think i got three o levels and that that was really about it
1: but before we dig back into your past I'd, i just want to finish off a little bit on what we were talking about uh, a second ago and this this odd sort of pull to america that we're all absolutely fascinated by america and you know you, you know certainly you know you guys with rattle and harm and the americana of america and at the same time, there is a level of of of, of repulsion and ambivalence and, and, and ambivalence and mm. and what you were trying to say in that some of that those those songs uh, a a critique yeah of of the place as well and this is the dilemma that I think all you know we all feel as musicians don't we we we're we're, we're really in love with this person, but it keeps kicking us
2: well i i th- i think we're we're a lot more aware now I think we know a lot more and we were all brought up on on that great period of of American spin, which was the 50s and the 60s, where Mm -hmm. nobody had traveled to the US. I mean, nobody I knew had been to the US uh, growing up. So when we saw images of San Francisco or New York on those television shows, we really went into the fantasy. And I think now when you see cop shows in New York or San Francisco, you look at it and you go, it's nothing like that. That is just a complete fantasy. And sorry, we were probably, you know, naively, you know, the the mythology of cowboys and Indians and gun culture rubbed off us a little bit back then. I think we're yeah. a bit wiser now.
1: I do think what you two have been clever at doing, and what what Bonner did, was you, you could wear a Stetson hat, a cowboy hat, on stage, and it it goes both ways, doesn't it? Part of it is is a homage to to what you know to western american culture and the other in t- the other way it's, it's a parody and it's it's making a sort of ironic comment yeah. and, and it wins both sides
2: yeah i mean uh, that, that's the brilliance. Th- there is absolutely those two sides and and of course the side that we all got excited about as musicians and artists is you know as, as you say guy we went there and we had the best time and it it was mm-hmm. big and fantastic and you could do anything and and there was a can do uh, mentality and that was so different to what we'd grown up with and and I think you know we we all saw the can do of what can american mm-hmm. can do but I think now we're talking 40 years on and you know has much really changed for you know those those race riots in the 60s mm-hmm. um the shootings of the students in in Kent State, Ohio. Is it possible that could not happen again? I, no, unfortunately, it does happen. And of course, the Floyd um, murder, as I think it's been it's been mm. determined as, is is a sign that things haven't moved as much as they should have done. And yeah. and it is the land of plenty. It is the land of opportunity. But but more people should be able to have a, a taste of that.
1: Yeah, I was watching 1971 documentary. I was thinking recently, about that. Yeah, and 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 you think, well, there's there's no difference, you know. This is 50 years ago, and where what what's really changed, you know. And it's not just in America. Let's face it, it's it's all over the West, and with popular gov populist governments, it, it's it's even worse. You know?
2: Yeah, but uh, well, yeah. we're
0: all so polarized, aren't we? Everyone's radicalized, and I'd count myself in that. It's you know, it's awful. Culture wars. Yeah. yeah. Well, but but I but I think what you what. what I still go back to this, this
1: thing because I think the reason, you know, the skill of you too and the reason you've had so much success there, a- apart from the fact that you've made incredible records and you're, you know, great performers, etc. is, you know, I think coming out of Ireland with that sort of history of protest and struggle and then, you know, having a sort of love of Americana and being able to do that you know you, you know you never went along that sort of lines of let's be super european like the a lot of stuff coming out of uh, uh, of um, of the uk in the 80s but that translates quite easily into you know american protest as well and that seemed, you know i think you were bringing a rather skillful look at america in
2: and back and selling it back to them well i i think what was happening was america was changing and you know we we came into to america as a rock band when there was still kind of rock radio. So, you know, the the Europeans, as you would know at that time, it was pop radio. And we knew that we weren't really, we weren't really uh, on top of our craft as pop songwriters, but we could, you know, we could come up with a good guitar riff. And that seemed to translate to being, getting American college play and later rock play as it replaced those hair hair and big ballad bands. So we we came in at that point and there was a younger there was a young a younger crowd taking over and they no longer wanted to just wear Stetsons and cowboy boots and Levi jeans and Wrangler shirts. You know, they were a little bit more politically aware and they were a little bit more fashion aware and they were a little bit more musically aware. And that was that was our way into America. And you know they really took us to heart but that's what i find interesting because it happened you know much more in america
0: than anywhere else and you were very much plowing a lonely furrow because there was so much new music and there was a whole new generation happening there was a whole mtv thing but and there was a lot of it was was british so, you know with new order and duran and you know spandau and, and everyone whereas rock music was a completely different world It was very much, it was like punk had never happened. It was still, it was very much this hair thing. And apart from people like Springsteen and much as we love to think The Clash broke America, did they really? And, you know, and um, so it's amazing. You really stood out. It was remarkable that you broke through the way you did.
2: Well, I think there was a visual to go with it, which was in 1983, I think it was, when we did that Red Rocks live film. Mm. Um, Mm. And, you know, we, you know, we always sort of pitched ourselves somewhere between the who and the clash, if you like, as in terms of, of guitar. And and that just was at that moment that that caught fire for us in in America.
1: Yeah. And also, I think, you know, Bono had that ability, especially when it comes across, begins to come across on that program, of, of, of being like a, a, an evangelical preacher for music, you know. And I think people saw that film and saw... How you know the audience were were b- b- being brought into yeah. this new thing, new movement that was happening. It was an irresistible charisma, really, against that incredible setting.
0: Yeah. It also, it could be that it's the first white person because black music had used that, like James Brown and everyone, had completely used that church-based sort of evangelical thing in music. But I guess it's the first time we've seen it from
2: Ireland. <laughs> 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 Yeah. <laughs> well, I you know I, I think I think he as a performer he was very good at connecting with with the audience and bringing them in and and you know at the time I remember our our, our sort of direct competitors if you like in 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 America were Echo and the Bunnymen and of course, oh, wow. and of course, Echo and the Bunnymen had a very different stance towards the audience and, and <laughs> I've played <laughs> g- g- for them.
0: I've actually done shows with Echo and the Bunnymen. Right. I, I can confirm
2: that. So, so, you know, it, so I, I think the English bands tended to um, t- to just be a little bit too cool for school and and really, you know, when you go somewhere and and, and you're trying to win over an audience. It's a different dialogue. You know, it's you you have to it's it's give and take and you have to kiss and fight and do all sorts of things. And that was what we did. And I I guess that partly, you know, again, we, we came up as a touring act and we knew that if if we had five people turn up that week, we had to get eight people in the next week.
0: No, talk of which, because we're obviously we're clearly not going to be able to do a, a chronological journey here. <laughs> we're just going to jump around, right? If that's all right with you, and I want to have a little base chat with you at some point. But um oh, that'll that probably won't take I, very long. The, no, <laughs> oh. not for either of us. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> but. um uh, there's some pictures I've seen, and it's credited to two different places, Hammersmith Palais or Hammersmith Odeon, and it's very early, it's like eighty, eighty-one, and it's you lot backstage, and Pete Townsend has brought Bruce Springsteen
2: to see you. It's like, what? <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> well, actually, there, there, were, there were two things that went on there, which was, I don't know if you read Bruce's book. Um, I haven't actually. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great one for lockdown. Well, if, if you read... We'll have by the time this comes out, so let's say yes. <laughs> if, if you read his book, I think it was the first time he played London and he was in the Odeon and he thought he'd, yeah. had, a, he'd had a really shit night. But um, Pete had gone to that and, and so had we. Now, we were playing in the Palais the night after and for, for people around the world, the Palais and the Odeon in Hammersmith were like really close to each other, but one was a really grungy... Mm-hmm. Kind of club venue and the other was more of a more of a theater Um, we were in the grungy venue and 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 pete and bruce came came along to our show and in a weird way because we were you know we were young and kind of full of ourselves we didn't really realize what a a major force bruce was but we definitely we definitely knew who pete townsend was and and pete's been (laughs) a great friend you know all down the years, he's, he's really amazing.
1: It's a good opportunity to go back a little bit now because you were talking, we were talking about the, the, the presence of, of Bono and his ability to woo an audience. <clears throat> and I saw Neil McCormack, you know, the, the Telegraph um, journalist, you know, old, I'm sure you know who Neil is, right? Yeah, yeah. You, well, exactly, you went to school with him uh, about a I wrote so a whole ago. play
2: about it, a book. Well, kind of play, well, yeah. Yeah. And film. I sold him my first base. Did you? <laughs> I did. Was that but a little, little bit West less... Tone or, or No, it was an Ibanez, it? Uh, Ibanez that's it. E V3 copy. Um, and unfortunately, <laughs> if he'd hung on to it, it it could have bought him a house at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> what he said
1: was rather than two nice things, but he said that Adam and Bono at school were so charismatic, they were just fabulous. Uh, kids that everyone wanted to be around and everyone was attracted to. And you had this little gang that was that was quite powerful and clicky, but, but, you know, drew attention. Do you remember it like that?
2: No, I I think in in the tradition of of bass players in bands, I probably was brought in because I looked right for the part Um, and I I was allowed to join this band of, of musicians. But but yeah, that I mean, Bono Bono was perfectly formed. Uh, I think he probably came out of the womb like that, um, and he had a charisma and an energy which he still has, and a curiosity. You know, he wasn't um, it, he he was never obvious. And then Edge, who I I knew his parents. Our, our parents had both moved to this little village outside of Dublin at the same time, and they were in amateur theatre together, and and sang in choruses and musicals and stuff like that. So Edge and I had a bit of a bond anyway. Um, But Edge being Welsh, I think, came from a real musical tradition. And he was very, very studious. And he and his brother played guitar together. And that was the nucleus of the band. Larry had a drum kit, though he was 14, I think, at that stage. And his father wanted him to be a jazz drummer. Ah. And,
1: and what music were you all into? What, what 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 did you grow up listening to? What were your first records and influences?
2: Um, I I definitely would have been Beatles first off. You know, I remember I my I grew up in a family of aunts and I remember Top of the Pop, <laughs> Black and White. Um, so it was Elvis and the Beatles that you know they they all kind of listened to, and I had all the Beatles forty fives, the, uh, the the White Album. The whole lot and then as i became a bit of a brat as a teenage brat then yes i'm afraid i did go towards some heavy metal um and then came out with singer songwriters and then gradually into pop um and uh i actually reggae again in the mid mid yeah. mid 70s mm-hmm. um started to get into bob marley as i started to experiment with other other things um I guess normal, I mean, did all the glam stuff in the 70s.
0: Yeah, um, and was the bass because you wanted to be in a band? Because that's the, you know, the thing I always said is that uh, when, I, when I was a kid, people became a bass player for one reason and one reason only, the band they wanted to be in didn't
2: have one. Pretty much, I, I say, you know, my, my best friend in school uh, played guitar and he said, let's form a band uh, and you can play bass. I can teach you how to do it in an afternoon. It's very easy. And I <laughs> and I went. How many strings? Don't are- don't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> how many strings are on a bass? And he said four. And I thought, well, I've got four fingers. I'm I'm sure I can figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> so, God,
1: what was it like that first? Those that first coming together. I've seen some footage on you on YouTube. when you did this uh, uh, Irish TV show in the, it could be late seventies and it, it was like it reminded me of flintlock in that program you know you must be joking <laughs> when i was a kid i mean oh my god
2: that's i mean <laughs> well you know i mean we were we were, we were the band that formed our first band and just stayed in it you know when we all met we had three chords between us um and you know fortunately the ramones came along and we figured out we could do something with three chords and we we didn't know the history of music we didn't know black music, we didn't know dance music. We had a really, really narrow band, and it would probably was David Bowie and Roxy music. Um, and then it. punk happened, and suddenly, as teenagers in the suburbs, suddenly there was a way of venting that anger and frustration. And I heard your really great Glenn Matlock interview. Um, I, I learned some oh. from that. <laughs> he's, he's, but, but that's what you know lit us up was the Sex Pistols, The Clash, that idea that, that you could just make a row and because you were making a row, it meant something.
0: Do you know what is fascinating from going back and listening to all your stuff, Adam, is that there's an interesting thing with the band. We always, this Beatles thing always comes up in our podcast, that thing of how, like, when, when you first heard the beat, when you heard, say, Twist and Shout, there was no way of knowing that Dear Prudence or Hey Jude was in there waiting to come out right or blackbird and whereas with some ads like what we found gary and i playing with the Sourceful of secrets is you go back and revisit that really early pink floyd stuff and it was actually all already in there like the wall everything it was all there already and listening listening to your first album it's like and you're still kind of a bit all over the place with there's all sorts of influences and stuff coming in but it's all there you can hear yeah. everything that's, you know, it's it's you. It was there, fully formed at the beginning, ready to, you know, evolve.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I I think that the difference between what happened with the Beatles' journey is they were absolutely the first. I mean, and yeah, in yeah. fact, when you listen to their pop, when you listen to that, it is so innocent, um, and yet there's a knowingness to it that works both in the lyric and in the melody. The, that innocence in the melody is is amazing yeah and then you have yeah, but you're the, right it's a little darker if you want she was just
1: seventeen you know what I mean yeah
0: you know but also there was the thing wasn't there? but there was this naivety wasn't there that when they when they heard someone singing saddle up and ride your pony they actually thought he was going to saddle up and ride a pony yeah yeah
1: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah but you know you, you we, we say that 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 it's all inside those early albums that you two fully formed. But the difference between that, those first records and Achtung Baby is, is almost the difference between Twist and Shout and Sgt. Pepper, isn't it? I mean, yeah, the, it's the absolute left turn you took there at a time when you could have just hung on to what everyone... you know, yeah. And we all know how
0: conservative American audiences can be. That was incredible risk-taking that paid off. And absolutely conscious, wasn't it? That was the thing. We're not doing this. We're going to try
2: that. It it was it it was a phenomenal left turn, but also what had happened in the interim time of us doing Joshua Tree and going off and doing the tour was there had been this real change happening in European music and and in UK music. Mm -hmm. And we just felt actually that was more what we were interested in as as players and as a band was this more rhythmic dance music. that that was just a bit darker I think we'd we'd really kind of come to the end of the road with that more traditional I mean they still haven't found type structures we knew we weren't going to go there again. Politically tectonic stuff
0: happening in Europe so that that was so obviously the you know the place to be looking now wasn't it?
2: Yeah I, well I think Europe was You know it was a a time where everyone was saying a united europe what a good idea you know (laughs) the the war oh don't don't (laughs) start the wall was coming down it was like let's all celebrate being european And, and and part of that was i guess you know the drug culture was changing and people were embracing each other and everything was kind of a bit more sticky and groove orientated and it just, we just didn't want to be the people left outside of that party.
1: So I feel like this this uh, Rock on Tours episode is is going to be a bit like those, you know, a bit like Godfather Part Two, you know, where they keep flashing back, flashing forward, <laughs> flashing back. And so so now I just wanted to talk to you about that first famous. EP you made called Three, because this was this was the beginning of of, of being embraced by by Ireland, was it, as the Irish punk band? Because we've obviously the Rats had done their were doing their thing, but yeah. it was much more pop, and they'd left they'd left they went straight to London. Mm-hmm. But
2: tell us about that EP. That must be quite rare now. Well, it was rare, and I mean we we had done a few demos, and at that stage as a young band you know you, you can hold on to your audience if there's some sort of momentum but if you're if you're playing a gig every month and there's no new thing happening you know the audience isn't getting bigger so we had recorded a few demos no real interest in the in the uk record companies so we thought yeah uh, we'll 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 enter a competition for you know, a band competition because there was prize money and a record deal involved. So we entered that. And by complete surprise, I mean, we we were a young punk band. Everyone else on the bill was either a pub rock band or an Irish show band. So they were all very simple, wearing <laughs> lots of glittery jackets and stuff. <laughs> Somehow we we won it. So CBS Records said, "Well, we'll we'll give you the record deal." Of course, it wasn't really a record deal. It was like they were going they were going to tie you up for years and years and years. Um, so we they said we'll be artistically free. <laughs> <laughs> but they did pay us to go and record the demos. So we did U23, which had Boy Girl on it on the B side, Stories for Boys, and of course the A side was out of control, and. They were all pretty strong contenders and we played them on a, a an Irish pirate radio station, which was the beginning of the change of radio in Ireland. And the audience voted for what the A-side would be, and that was out of control. And out of control, uh, I think at this point, it, it was documented about the day, it was written about the day Bonner turned 18. And I guess it was in, in, the, in the punk genre, um, it was very relevant, I mean, you know, Uh, the jam had happened there were lots of these young bands happening and talking about their generation so so this was what how bonner felt turning 18. i i would say in retrospect there's probably a wee bit of a skids influence you know there's yeah
0: i noticed that yeah
2: yeah yeah there was a stuart adamson you know was was kind of a great guitar player um and we liked the kind of Brawn of of the Skids, you know, Jobbo was 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 rough and tough.
0: Well, it's Celtic,
2: isn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was was was, Ru- was
1: it Rusty Egan? Did he play with? The, did he played on yeah. the drums yeah. with, the, with the Skids? Yeah, yeah. And obviously, Joy Division is in there as well, isn't there? There's there's that you're bridging that gap into things yeah. that will go eventually become more '80s, if
2: you like. You, you couldn't um, escape Joy Division back then. I mean, they just cast a huge shadow. At, because it was so, it was so different and it was so specific to that generation of uh, suburban northern city life. There's also, because there's something um, um, that
0: you mentioned then because you said, I know you, you said your influences as a player were like Jean-Jacques Bernal, like all of us, Jean-Jacques Bernal, Peter Hook and everyone, but there's an interesting thing I think that happened to your playing, which is the obvious thing that would happen, especially with Edge's guitar style, is that is that something that you would drive and you used to play with a pick and you drove. Yeah. Right. It was very much. And then you had this thing and then you switched to playing with a finger and then you and instead you made it flow. It became more like a river than an express train. And I think that's one of the things that really opened up the
2: landscape for of you two musically. Well, so. I think, yeah, I mean, in the in the very, very early days, you know, it was only Edge and myself providing, you know, the drive and the mid range. And he was playing a lot of arpeggios. So. So me playing with a pick really filled that space. And and I did, I was influenced by, you know, the sound Jean-Jacques had and the intensity of what he did. Um, I think once, I mean, as you would know, uh, once you bring in more keyboards, the bass really has to go down low because everybody playing, playing over each other.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
1: I just want to mention uh, a bit of um record company failure because I love you know we all, we all love the bit of record company failure right so unless they're selling our <laughs> records <laughs> and, uh, and the fact that that you had you were on CBS and then they didn't sign you they 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 didn't think you were right for them or obi didn't did he uh
2: no I mean we you know and to be fair um, it, you you'd have had to have really sort of been pretty imaginative to think that there was a future for us back then. I mean, it wasn't obvious. Um, and in fact, they did, you know, we were due to do a second single for them, um, and and we did deliver it, and they just were not interested. It wasn't really what was happening at the time. But by the time Ireland saw us, and I think Ireland took, used to take on hard cases, then, you know, we'd probably gotten a little better and they could see what they were going to do with us. I'm so glad we didn't sign to CBS because I don't think it would have worked at all. They, they had, uh, but but you because you, you stayed in Ireland. That's the thing. I mean, what were your visions in the
0: beginning? Was it like the rats or whatever that we have to move to London to make this happen? Or? But
1: but but also, can I just add to that that Ireland is the spiritual home of this, of, of of you too? And because you know, Roxy Music and and, and yeah. Chris Blackwell. You know who ran Ireland at the time was such a,
0: a genius. Yeah, well, you're very lucky yeah. in that because with someone as strong as Bono, because very because uh, uh, Chris's game plan in the old days used to be he if he saw a singer he liked, he'd sign the
2: band and then just slowly get rid of them <laughs> and keep <laughs> the singer. <laughs> I mean, we 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 had a very good relationship with Chris, but I think it was because we had a very strong idea of who we were and we had very strong management, so it was we were able to counterbalance that. And, of course, what ended up happening at Ireland was they, they let us run the show. And, again, I don't think that would have worked, you know, at a bigger record company, at a CBS. Mm-hmm. Um, so Island, Island became our collaborator, and they were distributed through Warner Brothers in America. And so we kind of dealt directly with Warner Brothers.
1: But what Guy said about you staying in Ireland, not making yeah. that choice to sort of up and leave and go to London...
2: Well, um, to be honest, a lot of that was economic. I mean, our, our record deal—the numbers were so small that we actually couldn't afford to move out of home. So we lived with our parents up until the War album. Um, there was there was no spare cash, and I think we paid ourselves something like twenty-five quid a week or whatever. So, have you ever had a job? <laughs> <laughs> what?
0: Other, other than being, uh, you this know, I know. The... <laughs> this is the first time he's ever asked that. No, <laughs> that's, so that's you a can, you're, you're living over your mum, and then you're getting twenty-five quid. I suddenly realised you've just left school with three O levels and never had a job.
2: Well, well, actually. Oh, is that right, or or, or a muck job of some actually, sort? I, that's all I meant. I had, you know, <laughs> two jobs uh, in in my. There you I, go. One, one of them was um, I used to do a summer job in London as a fish porter in Billingsgate and uh that was a great job because the market used to finish at about 11:30, and i would then go off into uh, i'd go off buying records and, and stuff like that and get to the odd gig and i'd do that for the summer i'd bank everything or i'd hold on to everything i made and then i would buy an amp or you know speaker or a bass or something so that was mm-hmm. my my first job my second job because i thought it might be useful uh, was i was a van driver for a um somebody who delivered pottery to Dunn Stores, which is a a discount chain all over Ireland. (laughs) Well, maybe he'll let me take the van home at night and I can use it for gigs. Uh, He never let me take it home at night.
1: Listen, uh, Adam, there are two people that sort of came into the world of you 2 that were very significant. I'm just interested in how these two relationships began and evolved. Uh, one is obviously Paul McGuinness, your manager, who was so, you know, visionary. Mm. And the other one is a- Anton Corbyn, who, who I think made an incredible difference to the band because he presented you in a way that was mythological.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, they were both key relationships. Paul, Paul, you know, it, Paul was one of those things that you could never have planned for it. It was There was a journalist in, in Dublin at Hot Press called Bill Graham, and he, you know, he, he spoke in riddles, to be perfectly honest, but he, he knew his music. He was one of those sort of characters.
0: And uh, Did he have to spend his whole life saying, no, not that Bill Graham?
2: <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> yes. Irish <laughs> Bill Graham is, is yeah. well, how we used to refer to him. But he saw one of our early gigs and he saw something in the band. And, you know, he was the only adult we knew who knew anything about music. So we said to him, well, look we're going to need a manager because we're going to need a van and we're going to need some gigs. <laughs> and he said, the, the only person who I think could do it is Paul McGuinness. And, you know, Paul had dropped out of college. He would worked uh, as an extra on a John Borman film. He'd done a little bit of assistant directing in the advertising world. And he, he, his best friend managed an Irish band called Horseless. And Paul always wanted a band to manage. And he came to see us. I don't think he was very impressed with us. I don't think he understood where we were coming from or what punk was. But he says that he saw something in Bono as a performer, which was that Bono was just eyeballing everybody in the audience, all six of them, and and was fearless. And Paul said, OK, I'll get involved. And of course, Paul didn't give up his day job he told us we had to play more gigs and work harder and write more songs um, and many rows ensued about why we needed a van so that we could make money but eventually you know Paul Paul came good he got us a record deal and he gave us very very good advice for 40 years That's true. And, and anton? Anton
0: Terrible advice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Great photos, terrible advice. I, I, I have to say, I, I don't know if you saw this. Anton's just put out a depeche mode book and he's been, yes. he's been doing some interviews about it. And he was comparing and contrasting the difference between working between depeche mode and working between you two. And he said with depeche mode, he said they pretty much would not be interested in what I was doing. And would just be very grateful that I'd taken responsibility for something. He said, very different to when I work with you too, where everything starts with a meeting. And I just thought, that is indeed, that is indeed <laughs> you too. We are in a constant state of meeting. Um, we were very collaborative with Anton. We first came across him when we did an Enemy piece in about 1983 for the release of the War album. Uh, we did photographs in ash or new orleans and we just loved the fact that he was dutch and that he couldn't pronounce certain words and in the way that um you know young men can be a bit foolish and snigger we kind of connected with that he was this tall (laughs) dutchman that couldn't speak english very well and we thought that was hilarious and and we quite liked his photographs as well so that relationship continued with anton it's it's not let's take a photograph, it's let's make a photograph. And um, of course, if there is four of you in a band, it is making a photograph because you aren't naturally going to fit together and it's not going to look right and pull together. But Anton realised, you know, if he told us not to laugh, which we were doing most of the time, because every time he spoke, we laughed and we had a really serious face, he could get something that, you know, legendary and and will last the test of time which is what he did but um yeah they were always I, I, they, they always yeah, looked I grim but they were they were a lot of fun at the time
1: well it's, it's interesting isn't it because obviously you know i mean i think it's, the photographs are incredible you know they look like so yeah. ansel adams or you know, you know he's turning you too into mount rushmore you know and he always put you on a place that was universal there was a sense that you know you you weren't being just shot on the Irish streets. You know, you were somewhere that was desolate and open and, you know, all of that mythological stuff. But, but yeah, also but, because, but,
0: because the lyrics are so elemental as well, aren't they? That's so Exactly, it goes but also with that.
1: serious, serious. And I, and I think there was a time, wasn't there, in your career when you thought, you know, maybe we should, maybe we're just being seen as too serious.
2: Well, that was, it, was that? With, yeah, I mean, that was acting, Baby. I mean, we said, look, we're not doing any more black and white no 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 more black and white Anton. we've got to do some color and and we went to uh, to tenerife we went to carnival we went to beaches we went to sun um uh we went to morocco um but still it ended up looking a bit serious i mean we even dressed up in drag you know we did some cross-dressing just to really try and burst the balloon but again i think You know, Antoine always likes to choose the photographs where we're not smiling. He always likes the serious face. And, you know, again, if you you follow the Depeche Mode model, you kind of have to let him do it his way um, because he always makes the right decision. And his photographs from uh, his musical photographs from from the 80s onwards, uh, really defined that era.
0: No, absolutely. But they always said, that. But, that's a, but scowling is better, isn't it? They said the thing that killed Blondie as a band that killed the unity was when they, they were all stitched up on the Parallel Lines cover where they were all told to smile and Debbie was told to scowl. So they just look like idiots, basically.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, rock and roll, unfortunately, it has to feel a little dangerous. And if you're warm and friendly and, and cuddly, um, it it doesn't work. But... We didn't really know that then, but Anton did.
0: But then, as you say, with I mean, we've got it because that whole that tongue paper. I saw that show at Wembley, and it was just incredible. I mean, that was a whole where well, it was a, a whole review that y- you just exploded into this totally kind of four-dimensional multimedia Technicolor thing as opposed to the, you know, this fabulous, earnest rock and roll band.
2: I mean, was that incredibly liberating for you as well? It was very liberating because, um, you know, we had toured the Joshua Tree, which went from arenas into stadiums, pre big stadium production and pre video reinforcement. So it was like four guys with their instruments, just, you know, on stage. I mean, it, it was the equivalent of, you know, Shea Stadium, but done on a whole tour. And mm-hmm. it, it was okay for us musicians, I think, because, you know, we, we, we had our instruments, but I think for Bono to get out there and, and connect with a stadium without any bells and whistles, um, I think mm-hmm. it nearly killed him. So, you know, after that, obviously Live Aid happened and big productions happened and the Stones and, and Pink Floyd were doing much more elaborate shows. And again, from a European perspective, that sort of theatre, that theatricality in in rock music was acceptable. Um, so once we got away from that root feel that everyone had sort of attributed to Joshua Tree, we were able to play around with the technology as the technology was developing. We suddenly realized we could do a lot more with, with production and a lot more with video. I mean, the screen quality was getting better um Mm -hmm. and the ability to edit and add things in it didn't have to be locked in on on a rail track
0: well actually I'll, i'll tell you something here because the first tour i did with pink floyd it was back in 87 and all that stuff had basically been invented by pink floyd right the circular screen that's pink floyd things flying over the it was all invented by them and there was the incredible production team and so when Pink Floyd go out it's like don't worry we own this this is ours okay and it was never any question of you know <laughs> you've got nothing to worry about it's Pink Floyd and then for the 94 tour I remember that they were getting the show together for the first time they're going yeah there's the U2 one to
2: beat <laughs> it was the first time they'd ever had to think that
0: it was like yeah but you 2 <laughs> you know we
2: but what I we, think we did benefit from all their research and of course we went Benefited <laughs> yeah. from a lot of their people as well, because because we yeah. we worked with Mark Fisher, who I think Mark Fisher, of course, all yeah. all yeah. those big stage yeah. goes for for the ten or fifteen year period. Yeah, you he know? did.
1: But I think what was interesting about that particular tour, Zoo TV, you know, was just the sort of prophetic comments that you were making about how we're all awash with media, and this is all pre-social media time. It's a very clever approach, I think, that that show because. You weren't just saying we're big. Here's more of us. You're saying, you're making a, some comment about on the uh, social structure that we're all we're all emerging into. And I think that that makes the audience feel almost like you know they're part of a revolution. They're part of a thought process that is bigger than just praising music.
2: I think you know the the best the best things in in in, in the arts is when it's not spelt out, but when you ignite. Mm-hmm. The audience's imagination. And I think Zoo TV did that. I think it didn't it didn't so much predict what the future would be, but it gave you a version of of what was coming, and you could put your own structure on it. And of course, it was influenced at that time by the you know there had been the first Gulf War, and we had seen mm-hmm. live pictures of missiles blowing up stuff on CNN news. So that idea of of 24 hour news, which was just happening, of things, you know, that were going on live. And that was really what we tried to conjure up and and play into. Well, I should remember
0: The Edge saying in an interview at the time about he'd seen an interview with a a pilot from the Gulf War who, when they said, what's it like flying those missions? He said, it's really realistic.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it, the the concept of those computer games and and all that mm. simulation was just coming to the forefront. Yeah. Um, and and maybe I don't know, but in, in a post-COVID world, we might well get to to a point where you know concerts are experienced in with goggles and headphones that you're not actually in a big room anymore. Mm-hmm. And there's a... There must
1: have been a moment in those in those Zoo TV shows. There must have been moments in there where you were you were pinching yourself because it wasn't that long before that you were those kids in Ireland. And suddenly now you're not just four kids. You're just, you're just this, this industry. And there are hundreds of people around you. You can't even remember their names. You know, impossible. You must be having so many meetings. I mean, was, did that, did that create, <laughs> you know, did that create yeah. an, an or oh, incra- your
0: itinerary must've been, Oh, well, that,
2: <laughs> did that create it, euphoria or fear? It, you know, it was one long meeting. You know, I to be to be um, candid here. Of course, I wasn't actually coping very well with all of this. Um, it was, I mean, I would have just been hitting 30. So from Joshua Tree, you know, which was 87 to 1991, 90, I I was I was having a little bit of a meltdown of of just not really knowing who I was or how to manage with all of this, and and I think probably all of us in our own different way, we're going through much the same thing. And again, that was part of the weird heady mix of it all was that Mm-mm. we weren't really in as much control of it as we thought we were. It, we'd created this Frankenstein and it had a momentum all of its own.
0: And how was that with the other three? I, I, I'm guessing they were really understanding that you, know, you were clearly on a sort of slightly different bus. Um, if, that's, if I can put it that way. Uh, you know,
2: we, we've having had a similar experience, yeah. experience myself, could I just say yeah. it, so? No, 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 I, I get that. Um, you know, I the thing is, if you're going through it, of course, I just thought I was just I, I was miserable. Um, you know, I I was kind of wondering why nobody understood me and, <laughs> and why I wasn't feeling better, and of course, it was because I was drinking too much and taking drugs. Um, you know, I think everybody just thought I was going to be okay, you know, because they were all dealing with their own issues. They all actually had families at that point. They had young kids. And, I mean, they were probably holding on tightly and gripping on. I mean, the the obviously it came to a head when I missed a show in Sydney, Australia, mm-hmm. which was, you know, if you're a musician in a band, that is, the thing you don't do that's the one thing <laughs> you can do it you've yeah. got one job <laughs> but, but
0: what's interesting but what's also interesting
1: adam is that they went ahead with that show without
0: you they they, they substituted you briefly well it was a rehearsal and, wasn't and, it kind of for a, for a big tv thing the next day wasn't it? No, i mean well, that was a well gig. no no
2: it was it was a gig was i it? mean we had two yeah, nights but... one was a rain day for this film mm. And, you know, we, we only had two two chances at getting it. And it was, it the money had been spent. The cameras were there. So it was obviously the right thing to do. Um, and the audience were there and they deserved a show. Um, and my tech was able to stand in. So, you know, it was all good on those levels. But, you know, I can't imagine what must have been going through those guys' heads as they were trying to perform that show. So... You know the great thing from my point of view was it was very obvious that the next move was mine, and the only move I could make was into rehab um and it was the best thing I ever did i i because there's something
0: and it obviously twigged something that I absolutely recognized because the fact that I've always remembered it i there was a big i think it was a cue piece. Uh, on you in the late 80s or early 90s where the, a, a, a journalist was embedded, I guess is the word, on your tour for a few days. And there was just one time, there was one tiny little thing where you were at the bar and you said, cool, you know, I wasn't going to drink today and I'm half pissed already. Right. And you just said that. And for some reason, And 30 years later, I remember that because that clearly, tw- I thought, oh God, I know that. Yeah.
2: yeah, <laughs> I know that one. Yeah. yeah. It, it, you can pick up on it now. Um, yeah, I'm, I just... You know, I think alcohol is, is so permissive and in our jobs as musicians, you make sure you can do your job. And then after after work, you know, whatever happens, happens. Growing up in Ireland, it's very much a, a drink culture. Uh, I mm-hmm. thought it was fine to drink a lot. It was only when I, when the wheels came off that I realised it was doing me a lot of harm.
1: Can I talk a little bit about, i get you to talk a little bit about the writing process in the band and... You know, I don't know whether there's any particular songs that stick out in your memory, but just how it comes together. Because, you know, I've read over the years, you know, about, you know, working with Eno and and you you know, it's a, there's a lot of jamming sessions that go on trying to build up music for, for, for Bono to take away and work on. What's, how, does, how is it?
2: Yeah, I mean, e- Eno is a great was, a, you know, the records that we did with Eno, he was a great catalyst because he, you know, he would start earlier in the day. And he would you know, find sounds or, or rhythmic things on, on his DX7. And when we would come in, he would have a bit of a tapestry going, which would be inspiring. And we'd come in and play over it. And that was really the way we worked for a long period of time. Within that, and, and we would shape these jams and, and you know, we'd write middle eights and, and choruses and whatever. And Bono would go off and, and scat vocals on them. That was one way that we worked. The other way was always the the edge is one of these people that you wouldn't see him doing his homework, but he'd kind of slope off in the evening and he'd be up for a couple of hours writing a song. So there were songs that would come from him that would be, you know, kind of fully formed. And Sunday Bloody Sunday was one of those in the early days. He's,
1: with melody as well, or just with the just the guitar parts. It he, he
2: would have he would have the bones of a of a melody, and you know, Bono and he would spar off each other. Uh, Vertigo was another one that came that way. Um, so he's he's really great at going. I'm going to make sure that the first day we turn up in the studio, we've got something to do, and then out of out of that would come all these other things. And of course, we used to end up, you know, in those jams, you would get something that you would never get from conventional songwriting. I mean, I don't think Bullet the Blue Sky would have happened in any other situation other than a jam, Mm -hmm. Um, and yet, say a song like One, which was two sets of chord sequences that were kind of edited together, that was two different jam sessions that, you know, out of frustration, um, edge put them together
0: and but David once you start introducing DJs and programmers at this point does the rhythm section become a little nervous <laughs> like danger mouth <laughs> yeah. um,
2: it's always tricky when you mm. when you bring in different people in that area but actually you know the the position I've taken over the years is I'm, I'm happy to let them do the heavy lifting <laughs> <laughs> You know, if it if it brings in a new idea and if it, you know, inspiring, then that's okay. Um, And, you know, I always I mean, the only thing I I draw a line at is is too much piano, because I always find piano just plonks all over whatever the bass part is doing. But, um, you know, that's just my thing. That's very true. You're absolutely
0: right. Yeah. Left hand piano. That's right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You you have to really watch that one.
0: God, yeah, you're right. Well, that's something for me to get really annoyed about now, thank oh, you. Oh, another thing. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> It'll be on Twitter all day now, <laughs> screaming about left hand on the piano. But, but, and there'll be a culture war. But,
0: but, but... Well, that was a terrible joke, wasn't it? It was, uh, it was uh, how, many keybo- how, um, how many bass players it take to change a light bulb. None. The keyboard player can do it with his left hand. <laughs> uh.
2: Yeah, Well, that, yeah, that is it. Um, but of course, that is, our, I suppose, our inspiration. It's our lot in life,
0: yeah. Adam. It's the cross we bear.
2: Well, I did I did notice that, that Glenn, you know, saying that he... Glenn Matlock, saying that he didn't like the bass on the first um, Pistols album because Steve Jones had done it and it sounded like a, a guitar player playing bass. Yeah. I knew exactly what he meant. Oh, that's, that's his, Absolutely. That's absolutely.
1: his other... That's her other bet noir. Please, can yeah, we not yeah, go yeah. there?
2: Yeah. Oh, don't... Oh, don't, we
0: need another hour. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, I...
1: I want to I ask about this longevity of this group because, and maybe maybe start with a particular story that I've heard. Because, I mean, one of the key things in, in your career was Live Aid, that moment mm-hmm. when, when Bono pulled the girl up from the audience and showed the world that this singer was incredible at connecting with the general public. But the story goes that after that show, You guys were a bit pissed off. You you thought, well, you know, he kind of separated himself from the band, and and you thought that was a bad thing until it turned into being a great
2: thing. Well, yeah, I think I, I think also, you know, we had worked out our strategy for doing Live Aid, and we had three songs. We rehearsed them. We we had a script, and of course, what Bono did was was the minute we got out there he he tore up the script and i'm really glad he did it was it was obviously the right thing to do so in fact we ended up having two songs and also you know as a performer you're going this is live television and we're standing on stage you know and we've no singer and we're just kind of we're going round and round this two chord sequence it didn't feel like there was a lot of drama we had no concept of what people were seeing on on TV around the world.
0: So was the was there eye rolling happening on stage? I
2: mean, it's, <laughs> off you go. <laughs> but no, no. I, I I mean I think I don't think we were that relaxed. <laughs> fear. Fear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just remember
1: fear backstage. <laughs> but but the longevity of the band is is
0: extraordinary. I mean you don't seem to have fallen foul of everything em- well, it's utterly that, unique. I think it's utterly unique, isn't it? I, it's it's, is, I don't know if there is another unit, is there, that's uh, that literally started there and, and is still there. Um, no personnel chills, nothing.
2: You know, I, I just, um, it, it is, you know, I do feel incredibly lucky. Um, I think we have, we, we, we've just managed to figure out how to get on with each other. Um, and maybe part of it was starting so young we thought when we put out boy as 20 year olds we thought we were a little bit too old to be putting out our first album but it meant that we spent from our 20s to our 30s in vans in sleeping bags pushed up against each other and and actually just working working away at it there was no there were no lines of demarcation at that point everybody did whatever they could to make the band better
1: bono hasn't decided i'm going to go and make my solo albums you know give me a few years off it's 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 recognition of everyone else that's in this group as being as being the reason he is in that place and and it's the sound and the band that everyone needs
2: yeah I mean I think at this point you know if Bono said that's what he wanted to do I think you know I, I'd certainly encourage him and everyone else would I mean I think we've all done 40 years that's pretty long in any job and if you wanted to- yeah go, go watch if you want it I think <laughs> yeah <laughs> if, if, if anyone wanted to go off and do something different and come back to the band or whatever, I think the band is elastic enough for that. But probably what's, what's happened in, in the time when we've grown together is that we realise that there's less division between us. There was much more division between us when we were younger. And now, and now you know, the idea of working together and doing another project together is actually exciting it's about you know what can we achieve together so it's just the way the relationship has changed and we're we're very lucky that that we did have 40 years together where you know the i mean the worst period for us was very much you know the first three albums when we thought we were going to be dropped by Island records and you know we would have to go back to the suburbs in ireland and and get day jobs but since then you know the the band has made um, records and toured at a level that's comfortable and has a continuity about it.
0: If I could just jump back, sorry, for one last <laughs> thing. We, I know we've kept you a long time, but so what was Steve, Steve Lillywhite, bringing to the party on those early records for you? What do you think? Uh, was...
2: You know, Steve is is one of those great enthusiastic, childlike talents. Um, mm. I mean, certainly, you know, obviously now he, he he's a very different kettle of fish, but. But back then Steve was interested in anything new. He was sharp, he was curious. And, you know, he filled us with a, a kind of confidence that perhaps Martin Hannett didn't, you know. Steve was, right. you know, you can, you can do anything. Yeah, we can do this, knock it out in a couple of hours. Whereas Martin Hannett, who'd done our first single, you know, he was a, a lot more laborious and a lot mm-hmm. more, just play that again, please. And, you know... At one... Or Manchester. Yeah, on our, on our first <laughs> single. I mean, we, we still hadn't got a backing track by one o'clock in the morning. And he called a meeting with Bono and Edge and said, what am I going to do? The rhythm section can't play in time. Uh, which may or may not have been true. But that, <laughs> at that point in the session, I'm not sure whether Martin was hearing straight either. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So what's next? What are the plans? Well, I think it's very difficult for uh, us to think about a plan because we always think about touring. And at the moment, there's, I don't think that's likely. Uh, obviously, it will open up and, and touring will happen. We have been doing various things. We we have a, a serious radio station in the US, which we've been feeding. And, you know, I, I DJ a bit. Edge does interviews. We have been recording acoustic versions of, of, of some of our catalogue in different keys at different tempos, um, just for ch- as a challenge. Um, we, I mean, we have a track in the next Sing 2 movie. You know, there's, start, there's things bubbling along. Bono and Edge have a track out at the moment for the UEFA uh, football. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just seeing what happens more than anything else. But at the same time, it's not... I mean, we have ambitions once we can see a reason to put out another record. There are songs being kind of siloed that will be brought out once we're ready to do a record.
1: Because I think the thing about you guys is you don't, just dwell in this era that was once your pomp because your pomp seems to be continuing mm-hmm. you know i think it feels that you're you're very much a band about the creative moment that you're always living in you know whatever the new zeitgeist album, the zeitgeist <laughs> that you're always uh, well, living that. in at any given time <laughs> yeah he, he hates that word yeah i'll never use it again you know why because he used you know why you know why adam probably hates it because he used to write about modern art for gq and he probably
2: overused it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i could never spell it exactly yeah um, <laughs> I, I, I think you know w- w- what you've put your finger on is, is you know I think our body of work it tends to be like our diary and it's like we always you know what's the next installment and and our catalog is the story of the band and the story of those relationships and where they're going so I'm always curious when we do an, another record to see what the state of of the band is what the state of those relationships are and you know the great thing is now that there isn't an upper age limit anymore on music. You can you can kind of keep going and do anything. Long may your diary continue, Adam. <laughs> Here's to meetings. Here's to
0: meetings. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, your diary is continuing, Gary. Don't you? You've an LP coming out. Is that, I've yeah? got
1: an LP coming out. Yeah, yeah. No, still making music. You know, I think the lockdown actually was was quite um, a creative. Uh, sort of force for me in a way you know a bit of it gave me the sort of discipline and the energy to get on with stuff you know before the world changed i think it took us all by surprise i know bono's been writing his book right
2: yeah bono's been working on a book which you know i i mean these things are they're hard to do you know to go back and try and piece together all those memories but um i think it'd be great when 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 he's ready to show it to the world thank you so much yeah
0: all right take care guys thank you Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks Thank you, everyone. Adam. Lovely to talk to you. <laughs> okay. Bye. Thank you. That was good. That was fantastic. And it was long, so we need to get out of your way because we want you to have as much of it as you can. So please subscribe. Thank you for listening and join us whenever you can. We'll be back here next week, though. Uh, it's good night from me. And it's good night from her. <laughs>